Greetings, Rocky River United Methodist Church and the community and all who are listening in today. Welcome to podcast session number three. Uh, Stephen Young, Director of Youth Ministries at the church, and myself, Paul Bennett, uh, Associate Pastor, here with you to to take you through um, one passage uh, this week leading up to Easter, and, and next week uh, we'll be addressing the Easter uh, passage itself, the story of the resurrection. And uh, we're excited to uh, be a part of your Holy Week. Happy Holy Week uh, to those who uh, have already uh, uh, initiated celebrations by uh, being part of Palm Sunday worship, perhaps the other day, and are looking towards other opportunities to, to uh, remember the sacred moments of this week and the days to come. We are uh, gathering today to, um, to reflect on a passage from the Gospel of Matthew, uh, chapter 27, verses 32 through 44. So go ahead if you have Bibles handy and uh, grab that and uh, be ready to listen in. Stephen Young's going to read it in just a moment. Matthew 27, 32 to 44. Um, once again, a reminder as you uh, listen into these podcasts, go back and listen and catch up on uh, ones you may have missed. And uh, feel free to comment below so that uh, we can be in, in dialogue with one another uh, as we engage these passages. And then each week we challenge you with one of your own uh, to, to uh, do some personal Bible study and, and uh, experience this uh, gift that is God's holy word and the opportunity to dive into it. But uh, with all that being said, uh, let's listen in as Stephen reads our passage. Yes, so we're reading Matthew chapter 27, 32 through 44. Again, to remind everyone, this is the NIV translation. So um, it might be a little different from the translation you may use. Um, but just to give everyone a heads up, it's an NIV translation. So this is the crucifixion of Jesus. As they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon and they forced him to carry the cross. They came to a place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. There they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. When they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. And sitting down, they kept watch over him there. Above his head, they placed the written charge against him, this is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. He's the king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. So friends, all of Scripture have been building up to these moments, and uh, there's a lot to unpack here, so let's, let's get going. Uh, so starting in verse, 40, uh, verse 32, uh, as they were going out, they met a man from Cyrene named Simon, and they forced him to carry the cross. So here's the, here's the image, uh, friends. Jesus has an entourage of people around him, and 
and uh, an entourage of people also lining the streets as he passes by on his way uh, from where his, his trial had completed to where he would be crucified uh, just outside the, the city of Jerusalem. Uh, historical evidence shows, uh, friends, uh, um, in contradiction to what a lot of us imagine being the case and what we've seen represented in, in movies and such, um, that when people who were going to be executed, to, to be crucified, uh, carried their cross, they didn't in fact carry the entire cross, they carried only the cross beam uh, known as the patibulum. So that's a new image to, to wrap your mind around as uh, we watch Jesus carry that cross beam outside of the city. Uh, and when they arrived at the place of crucifixion, that cross beam with uh, the the uh, person to be executed already attached to it uh, then um, as soon as they arrived either by nails or, or by uh, rope uh, the the prisoner was attached to it and then the cross beam was connected to the vertical beam and uh, with the person to be crucified attached um, and all one piece it was hoisted into its spot into the hole that had been prepared for it in the ground uh, jesus had already been flogged prior to uh, being asked to carry the patibulum um, to the, the place of crucifixion. That, that beam itself weighed about 30 to 40 pounds, and they were attaching it to him uh, by strapping it to his shoulders. Uh, so he had lost a tremendous amount of blood. He was near death already. His shoulders were shredded from the flogging. The chance of Jesus completing this journey uh, with the beam strapped across his shoulders successfully was, was slim to none. And so enters Simon of Cyrene. One of my absolute favorite characters in all of Scripture. Uh, we, we don't imagine here the soldiers really felt any sympathy for Jesus in, in pulling Simon out of the crowd, but you can't force somebody to do something that they physically cannot do. So Simon is chosen seemingly at random. Uh, Simon is from Cyrene, which is a town in North Africa, uh, the eastern portion of what is uh, modern-day Libya. And uh, we imagine Simon was probably uh, on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. The Gospel of Mark um, actually refers to his two sons, Alexander and Rufus, uh, we, we, we assume traveling with him. And uh, they had arrived in the city of Jerusalem. Maybe we're just walking in right then. The journey would have taken them about a month, uh, so it may not be something that Simon did every year. In fact, this may be the first time his two sons has, had entered the holy city of Jerusalem on this pilgrimage. And what an incredible, uh, chaotic, and horrifying scene for them to walk into, right? Uh, but suddenly the soldiers are, are dragging their own father into the fray. I can't uh, read this, this verse in Scripture without thinking back to a, a song uh, by the artist Ray Boltz. Uh, many of you may not be familiar. He's from the, the 80s and, and 90s, was big as a Christian artist. He wrote a song called Watch the Lamb. And, and when uh, within that song, he imagines uh, Simon and his two sons having their lamb that they were bringing to sacrifice uh, during the Passover with them and walking by um, Jesus carrying his, his cross uh, to Golgotha. And when Simon gets pulled uh, into the fray and uh, is, is told to carry Jesus' cross, he turns to his sons and he tells them, watch the lamb, take care of the lamb, keep an eye on the lamb. And of course, by the end of the song, that had taken on new meaning as the lamb, instead of uh, being the lamb that they had brought to sacrifice, became Jesus on the cross. And finally, he turned to his uh, two sons at the end and told them once again, watch the lamb and pointed up at Jesus upon the cross. Powerful rendition of this passage. 
Uh, so what else do we know about Simon of Cyrene? Not much, but we do uh, have reference to uh, a man named Rufus and his mother in Romans 16, where the Apostle Paul sends greetings to him. And uh, we, we have to assume perhaps this is uh, Rufus, the son of Simon, and uh, he's referenced here as a strong follower of Christ and part of the early church. So kind of a neat uh, a conclusion perhaps to, to that part of the story that Rufus, who watched Jesus carry his cross to Golgotha, uh, eventually ends up accepting Jesus as his Savior and becoming one of uh, the, the devoted members of the early church. I think it's also important to point out with... Um Simon is serene coming in from North Africa and you have to remember that with the Passover happening this was a big multicultural event that um, Jews throughout the Roman Empire are all coming into Passover um, so we have people coming from everywhere um, seeing this event taking place um, and you can imagine how news was spread with so many people um, also remember in Acts when the disciples in the upper room and and when they come out and the Holy Spirit ignites them, they speak all those many different languages. You could think of all those languages that the disciples speak um, just gives evidence to just the multicultural um, event and the multicultural Jewish faith um, that was taking part. Uh, so we're going to look at uh, verse 33. It said, They came to the place called Golgotha, which means the place of the skull. So, What's important is that whenever you read in Scripture and you see Simon of Cyrene or Golgotha, when they have these specific names that really speak to the, to the historical evidence of Scripture. Um, so when Matthew is writing this, um, when he writes Golgotha, people would know that immediately. So imagine um, you're writing a book or I'm writing a book and we're writing about New York City. And we mentioned Empire State Building, you know, so people would know that name. Oh, it's the Empire State Building and it has significance with that name. And same with Matthew when he's writing and said he died on Golgotha and people, are, people know that place. Um, and there's several reasons. So why, why would that place be called the place of the skull? And there's several reasons that why that could be. Um, obviously, first one, it's a place of execution. Um, so it could have also had a lot of tombs in that site. Um, another reason it could have been called Golgotha is the site in some way resembles a skull. So they call it the place of the skull. Um, so either way, it's a site associated with death. And, and I think many people, when they heard that name, they knew that that place was associated with death. Um, so it's mostly, it would be a really well-known place for the death of criminals and rebels against Rome. Again, like I mentioned before, this is, as we talk about um, this passage, we always have to keep in mind, and I'll mention it several times, is that everything that's taken place is not taken place in a corner. This is taken place in a very public setting where many, many people are aware and see um, the execution of Jesus. So as we progress to verse 34 there, they offered Jesus wine to drink mixed with gall, but after tasting it, he refused to drink it. So what's the deal with this wine uh, mixed with gall? Uh, Jewish tradition, if you, you start digging into um, texts regarding uh, Jewish tradition from that time, uh, tells us that there was an old practice where every prisoner that was led out uh, to be crucified was offered a goblet of wine 
that contained a grain of frankincense uh, within it to numb the senses. Uh, senses. You heard that right, frankincense. Um, frankincense you may recognize to be one of the three gifts offered to Jesus by the Magi um, at his birth. Myrrh, a uh, second one of those gifts, would actually be probably used hours later uh, after this when Jesus is embalmed. Uh, so those two of the three show up uh, in these, these final hours. The frankincense, though, um, is just uh, mentioned here in, in reference because it uh, didn't actually get used in, in Jesus' goblet of wine because uh, they had no such compassion on Jesus. Instead, he receives a, a, a goblet of wine with gall in it. Gall was a bitter herb that may, uh, may very well have even been poisonous. Um, not that that would have made that big of a difference for somebody that was about to be executed, but just adding insult to injury, right? So Jesus received no such compassion, just one more way uh, that the soldiers and, and the onlookers um, took advantage of, of Jesus's vulnerability here, persecuted him and oppressed him even more so. Uh, it's easy to miss here as well, but yet again, Jesus is uh, fulfilling Old Testament prophecy. This bitter wine uh, harkens back to Psalm 69. Uh, Psalm 69 is one of those passages similar to Psalm 22, which we'll bring in a few more times uh, today, that holds value on the surface level when you read it as a Psalm of David, something that he's going through, but also beneath the surface you see uh, some truth about uh, the coming Messiah and something that he would one day endure and uh, that's what happens in Psalm 69. Uh, we see a reference to um, somebody receiving wine mixed with gall, and that becomes Jesus on the cross uh, roughly a thousand years later. So then when we look at um, the really short sentence, but very powerful, verse 35, when they had crucified him, they divided up his clothes by casting lots. Now, Jesus' crucifixion isn't given much detail um, because the original readers of the text would have known about crucifixion and what that would entail. They didn't need the, the gory details. Um, crucifixion was perhaps the cruelest and most public form of execution. Um, the most common cause of death was suffocation because it was too exhausting to push oneself up with their feet um, that was nailed to the cross. So just imagine your arms are spread out wide and, and you can't breathe because you're sinking down. So you would have to push your feet up to get a breath and then you would sink back down. Um, again, very, very excruciating and very, very difficult um, to live, obviously, in that situation. Um, crucifixion primarily took place near public roads and travel as a warning to anyone else who would dare challenge Rome. Um, so as those were crucified, so imagine you're coming into a town. Imagine you're in Roman times. You're coming into town, and you see these crucifixions along the road, and it would remind you that we're not going to rebel against Rome, or we won't speak up against Rome. It was a sign and show of power uh, of Roman influence. So again, as I mentioned before, Jesus' crucifixion, people are passing by, and they see our Savior um, dying a humiliating public death. Um, and also imagine, too, that in our day and age, wearing a crucifix is a sign of sometimes pop culture and just wear a cross. But you have to imagine back then if someone wearing a cross, that would have been very, very, very odd. 
Um, imagine today if someone wearing an electric chair or someone wearing some other sign of death, of crucifix or some sign of execution, it would be very odd to run into someone wearing a sign of crucifixion or uh, execution. Um, so remember that the crosses that we wear today are a sign of Jesus' execution. And then we have the divided of the clothes, which was predicted and fulfilled um, predicted by scripture and the soldiers fulfilled the scriptures. Um, I would challenge you to read John chapter 19 verses 23 through 24 and it gives much more detail into the soldiers um, casting lots for Jesus' clothes. Verse 37. Above his head they placed the written charge against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. So Stephen was just detailing some of the um, intent behind these public executions was a, was a form of intimidation for those who might oppose the Roman Empire. And uh, these, uh, these signs uh, that were hung above uh, the crosses and uh, used in other places as well uh, were just one more piece of, of that uh, accomplishing that, that end. So um, many of us are familiar, we've heard tell of this, this sign that Jesus had above his cross, identifying him as the the king of the Jews. And this was a, a common occurrence. Uh, we don't know whether the other two uh, robbers that were on either side of him uh, had similar signs, but uh, just another way to intimidate onlookers. And what better way to intimidate those people from committing similar crimes than by identifying the specific crime that a person committed uh, right above where they're being executed. <clears throat> now, Jesus' sign, we're told, uh, was written in three different languages. Um, and we read this in, in other gospel accounts, Aramaic, uh, Latin, and Greek. Uh, so they were making doubly sure, uh, triply sure, in fact, that every single person in the vicinity uh, would have access to reading that sign and identifying exactly what Jesus had done to deserve this kind of punishment. It's interesting. We don't even, I, I don't think I go... Uh, virtually anywhere in the world today and uh, see anything written in three different languages, even in the, the melting pot that is the U.S. Uh, but Jesus is signed because of the intent to intimidate and, and frighten those uh, who might pass by, included three languages. Um, what else do we know about this sign? He may have even worn it uh, around his neck and carrying the cross um, to the, the execution site. It was something that uh, that Pilate, actually, the, the Roman governor of the territory, um, had dictated uh, should happen, that this sign should be created and exactly what it should say. We hear more about this in the Gospel of John, uh, once again, as Stephen led you to a moment ago. Um, but Pilate determined that the sign would read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. All right, so Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, is a, a Jew who uh, may be in opposition to Jesus, look at him as a, a threat and uh, a uh, hypocrite, you might hear that and initially say, yeah, that's right, Jesus of Nazareth is is claiming to be the king, and, and that's exactly what the sign should say. But then you might soon do a double take and, and recognize, okay, uh, maybe we should make this a little bit more clear. Uh, so there were those, we're told, that went to Pilate and said, you know, Pilate, can't we clarify things a little bit and say on the sign, Jesus of Nazareth claimed to be the king of the Jews? That word claimed is essential, right, Pilate? You know, we have to make it clear that he really wasn't. Pilate's infamous response uh, to those who criticized his sign was simply this. What I have written, I have written. 
So another uh, dose of mystery in the pilot's character was uh, Jesus having an impact on him, uh, more so than we realize, more so than uh, we uh, are able to see in their conversations, uh, perhaps. But either way, the deeper irony here is that the sign intended to mock Jesus was actually 100% true. Jesus was and is the king of the Jews, exactly what he is accused of being, and not only that, but the king of the world. Yes, so we jump to uh, verse 38. We get the mention of the two rebels. Verse 38 says, Two rebels were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. And um, Jesus died a death. An innocent man died a death among criminals, real criminals who actually committed crimes. Um, and again, it's just the power of Scripture and, and, and it being the word of God, because this is something that was predicted thousands of years um, before Jesus had even died. So we look at Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12, and it reads, Therefore I will give him a portion among the great, and he will, he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for he bore the sins of many, and made intercession for their for the transgressors. So we have in there Isaiah says he um, he was numbered with the transgressors, and this is Jesus being numbered with criminals. And Jesus is innocent; he hasn't done anything. And of course, um, as you read in Isaiah fifty three twelve, we see that he's dying. He bore the sins of many. So the huge irony here is he's actually dying for the forgiveness of the rebel sins who are dying right next to him. Um, just an amazing picture of God, our Savior, dying for the very criminals next to him. And, and of course, I think many of us are aware of the, uh, the rebel's account in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 23, verses 39 through 43. And we get the account of one of the rebels. Jesus says that you'll be with me in paradise. And uh, I, I challenge you to go back and read that. Um, that passage um, in Luke, and it gives a great account of of these two rebels who are aware that they deserve what they're getting, and they're also aware that Jesus is innocent. And Stephen, just uh, another passage I think I love that, that relates to this. Um, just a, a week before this um, gospel account shares that James and John, the sons of Zebedee, went up to Jesus, right, and they said, um, can, can we have the places of honor on your left and on your right when you come into your kingdom, right? And uh, Jesus said, you have no idea uh, the question, the, the favor that you're asking of me. And here we see that played out. So I think it's a message to all of us that Jesus's kingdom uh, is, is one of those inside out kingdoms. It's, it's not what we expect. Uh, places of honor um, do not come in the same manner that they come in, in our world. Uh, they come with sacrifice, servitude, and uh, love uh, for those around us. And, and uh, sometimes it looks like uh, having to take up your own cross and, and follow Jesus and uh, be uh, in a place of suffering right alongside him. Verses 39 and 40 reads uh, as, followers, th as follows. Uh, those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, You who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. Come down from the cross if you are the Son of God. So people passing by, uh, rather vague, right? Uh, this, this reference to those who pass by, 
Um, the, the truth is that in uh, Jerusalem on a typical day, there was about a population of 50,000 people. We get this information from uh, Josephus, uh, who I believe we've referenced in previous podcasts uh, as a, a historian, a Jewish historian that lived about the time of Jesus uh, shortly thereafter. Uh, so normal population, about 50,000 during the, the Jewish festivals, especially Passover, population swelled anywhere between 200,000 to a million people. Uh, kind of like uh, New Orleans during Mardi Gras, right? So the city just multiplies in, in population. So there are literally people everywhere bouncing off of each other. Um, but especially they're, they're going to congregate where the, the entertainment is, which sadly is uh, at the feet of, of Jesus' cross. And so we're told these people are hurling insults at Jesus. They're shaking their heads. Uh, this is one of those promised references back to Psalm 22 again. Psalm 22, verse 7, reads exactly like this. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. Right? You could almost uh, take the, the exact uh, verse from Psalm 22 and, and place it here and, and see not a, a letter um, out of place. So uh, we're, we're fulfilling prophecy once again through Jesus's, uh, the uh, reality of, of Jesus on the cross and the people's reaction around him. Um, what, are they, what are they responding to? What are they specifically calling him out for? Uh, they're referring to this time when Jesus uh, declared that uh, the temple could be destroyed. He could build it again in three days. Uh, this actually goes back to the early days of Jesus's ministry when he first said this, but it was brought up in, in uh, his trial before Caiaphas, the high priest. Uh, so back in the day, Jesus had made this reference that if, uh, if the temple were to be destroyed, he would rebuild it in three days. Uh, after the cross, we're able to look back and, and see what Jesus was talking about. He was referring to himself as the temple. Uh, he himself could be destroyed and could be resurrected in three days and, and in doing so become the temple, the, the connecting piece between God and his people for all of humanity for all time, which, which was exactly what Jesus was alluding to. Uh, but the first century Jews didn't get that. Um, there was nothing more blasphemous than for a person to claim that somehow they were more powerful or more important than the Holy Temple of Jerusalem. Ultimately, you set aside all of these misunderstandings, though, the confusion amongst the people. The one thing that they kept coming back to that they were using as fuel to, to mock and ridicule him was that he was a divine. He claimed to be divine, claimed to be a king, yet he couldn't rescue himself, even though he had done so for so many people during his ministry. The reality was Jesus could have rescued himself, but he set aside that power out of love for us because in order to complete his mission, he needed to die upon that cross. They didn't get it, that it was all being done out of love for them. Um, but that's the, the stark reality of what was going on. Also, when you um, look at verse 40, and they're calling him out for being the Son of God, it, it meant also that people are... Seeing Jesus' death as a death for blasphemy, because um, they knew that the Son of God was equal with God. And if he was equal with God, he should be able to save himself, as according to what Paul was saying. And, and this challenge to Jesus' identity as the Son of God takes us back to Jesus' temptation in the desert with Satan. Um, and Satan, at the same time, he said, if you are the Son of God, Tell these stones to become bread. Or he said, if you are the Son of God, throw yourself down. Now, I don't believe these people are at all possessed by Satan or the devil. 
but they were certainly carrying out um, the devil's schemes and temptations against Jesus to be to challenge his identity as the Son of God um, falls in the same vein that Satan as well was challenging Jesus' identity as the Son of God. And then when we go to verse 40, we have the religious leaders. In the same way, the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders mocked him. He saved others, they said, but he cannot save himself. He's a king of Israel. Let him come down from the cross, and we will believe in him. In the same way as the crowd, as Paul just mentioned, all the religious leaders of Israel also mocked Jesus. The chief priests, teachers of the law, and the elders. All the religious leaders were getting what they desired for some time. So actually, when we look at John's gospel, it says that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they were already plotting to kill Jesus. Um, in Mark's gospel... Um, they're plotting to kill Jesus um, very early on in his ministry. So after Jesus healed the man with the shriveled hand, um, the leaders got together to plot to kill Jesus. So many religious leaders perhaps were thinking this was the end of all this Jesus talk and all this Jesus teaching. <coughs> perhaps this they thought, they thought finally they got what they had wanted, the death of Jesus. Um, but little did they know... <laughs> what they were up against. And then in verse 42, it says they mocked him over his kingship as well. So according to them, the real king of Israel would have never died such a death, that the real king of Israel would conquer Rome and usher in a new Jewish kingdom on earth. So Jesus' death on the cross proved to them that Jesus was not the king of Israel. Again, they asked to see his power, and then... As Paul had just mentioned, Jesus could have very well saved himself on that cross, but he decided to stay on the cross. He decided to die upon the cross. And again, Jesus did many miracles throughout his ministry, and people still did not believe him. It was going to take his death on the cross and his eventual resurrection to show people that he really and truly is the Son of God. And the ridicule from the religious leaders continues in verse 43. They, uh, they shout out, he trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he wants him. For he said, I am the son of God. Uh, so, you know, nothing really going on here except another incredible uh, fulfillment of prophecy as we point back once again to Psalm 22, I think for the fourth or fifth time in this brief podcast series, because uh, Psalm 22 um, reads exactly like this. Uh, it says he trusts in God. Or I'm sorry, this is uh, this is the Matthew um, the Matthew account it says that he trusts in God. Let God rescue him. Uh, Psalm 22 writes, all who all who see me mock me, they hurl insults. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. So once again, we see almost the exact wording uh, carried over from Psalm 22 here to Matthew's account. And all contributing to this reality that Jesus, uh, contrary to what things may look like right now, is in complete control. He is fulfilling prophecy that was written, in this case, a thousand years prior. Uh, others that have been written thousands, six thousand years prior. He's fulfilling all of these prophecies. He's on a mission. He's completing his mission. He's doing exactly what was intended from the very beginning of time. And as miserable as things look, and as much as this looks like an utter defeat, 
Jesus is in complete control because he loves us so much that this was the plan from the beginning that he would give his life upon the cross to rescue us from our sins. And the fulfillment of prophecy over and over and over reminds us of that. And Matthew uh, is, is intent on making sure that we make that connection. He does so multiple times in this passage. Now we have finally come to the last verse, verse 44. In the same way, the rebels who were crucified with him also heaped insults on him. With the robbers joining in on the mockery, it was a full choir of mockery towards Jesus. The voices of those who followed Jesus were silent, and at this moment, um, they all thought the movement was over, and perhaps some even saw their own lives at risk. Um, especially those closest to Jesus. So we have just a choir and just sounds of mockery towards Jesus. And again, um, reminded that those closest to Jesus were even afraid for their own lives. Um, and, and, and according to Matthew's account, we, have, we see Jesus really dying alone in a sense that um, those closest to him, Matthew's account, you don't see him. Um, and, and, and again, it leaves us with this very just bleak picture of Jesus' death. Yeah, I'm, I'm trying to imagine being somebody who did believe that Jesus was the Messiah in those moments. Uh, you've already waited centuries and centuries for your Messiah to show up, to finally set things right. And your Messiah finally does show up, and you place all of your, your hope in him and uh, in him, what he's about to accomplish. It all builds up uh, to this time when he, he comes uh, prancing into Jerusalem on a, on a donkey and he's going to be victorious and all the people are, are falling in line behind him and everything is about to become beautiful and glorious. And then within a week's time, all of your hope and the hope of your ancestors going back generation after generation is obliterated with Jesus breathing his last upon the cross. I can't imagine a darker place than for those uh, who had 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 that experience. And uh, that's exactly where we're at as we wrap up uh, today. We're going to encourage you, as we have uh, the last three weeks, uh, to do a study of your own. And so to bridge the gap between where we leave off today and where we're going to pick up next week in celebrating uh, the, the Easter account, we're going to invite you to read and study John chapter 19, verses 28 through 42. Uh, this is the account of uh, the end of Jesus' life upon the cross and his uh, placement in the tomb. So we encourage you to read that. Uh, use the, the uh, guide on the, the site there that you can click on to, to, uh, to guide you through the process of asking the right questions and, and seeking out the right information to, to have a powerful experience of Bible study with that passage. Um, and it is Holy Week, so I, I, I would be amiss to, to not uh, remind you of a few things. Monday, Thursday is... Uh, uh, service being live streamed at 7.30 so uh, join us for that have your communi communion elements ready so we can partake together as a church family and beyond uh, Good Friday materials for, for some time of prayer and reflection will be uh, provided uh, via the website in uh, the next day or so plenty of time for you to make use of those uh, during your Good Friday reflections and then beyond into the, uh, the, the Lenten prayer vigil that will take place uh, over Good Friday and into Easter Sunday morning. And then, of course, um, even as important as it is that we hit all of these stops along the way, we certainly want to conclude on a high note and spend Easter Sunday morning 
worshiping uh, together via the live stream, celebrating uh, the resurrection that uh, is the rest of the story of Jesus's life and of uh, all of eternity that's now laid out before us because of the beauty of the gift of the resurrection. Uh, so that is uh, our closing remarks, and uh, we'll send you out with a, a blessing, and Stephen will take us to it. Yeah, so if you would bow your heads with me as I close us in prayer. Jesus, we thank you so much that you did not get off that cross. Because you did not get off that cross, we have life in your name. Because you did not get off that cross, we have the promised relationship with God, eternal life. And Jesus, you showed your greatest love when you did not get off the cross. And we thank you for all that you've done in our lives. And even in these difficult circumstances and situations, we never question the love of Jesus. And I pray during this holy week, we just refresh in our relationship with you and grow nearer and nearer so we can feel your warmth as you continue to speak love into our lives. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.